And we live in a day where many Christians are asking a critical question, how do I, as a believer, make an impact in this kind of a culture? And God's method has always been the same. He uses a person who's distinctively different from the culture. It's not our likeness to the world that will win the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. For the last two weeks, we have been in a series on morality and moral excellence. We began our series by studying the life of King David as we examined how to avoid moral failure. In part two, we examined how to find moral forgiveness by looking at the life of the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And in part 3, Pastor Carl reminded us that we are never to compromise the Word of God or His standards in reaping moral compromise. Today's sermon is entitled, Achieving Moral Victory. We will be in the book of Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 21. Please join us in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, as we begin. Take your Bibles with you this morning, Genesis chapter 39. If you're here for the first time, we just finished the epistle of James, and we will soon begin, Lord willing, an Old Testament book. But before we begin that, I want to address a number of issues, some that you've asked me about, some you've written me about, and some God has just burdened me to address. And so right now we are in a series on the subject of morality. And sadly, we live in a day where most Americans no longer blush. The things that used to create a red face now amuse us. And so we started this series with King David as we addressed the subject of avoiding moral failure. Then we looked at the woman caught in adultery and we examined the subject of finding moral forgiveness. If you were here last time, we looked at Genesis 38 with Judah as we spoke on the subject of reaping moral compromise. And today, as you can see there on your outline, if you're online, there's a place to print it out. I want to address the subject of achieving moral victory. Now, we live in a sex-drenched culture that is covered over in sensuality and immorality, And it's a crisis that is not just true in America, it is now true across the planet. And Scripture reminds us that this very thing would happen at the end of time before the return of God's Son from heaven. And now Scripture here in these United States is colliding with the law of the land. The family that was once the fabric of our nation is fast becoming unraveled. And sadly, more and more born-again Christians, when they stand for what's right, they seem awed. They are ostracized. By the way, religious liberty is never promised in the Bible, but persecution is. And so ultimately, we must not bow to Caesar. We must bow to King Jesus. And we live in a day where many Christians are asking a critical question, how do I, as a believer, make an impact in this kind of a culture? And God's method has always been the same. 
He uses a person who's distinctively different from the culture. It's not our likeness to the world that will win the world. It's our distinctiveness from the world. And we find such a person in Joseph. 25% of the book of Genesis is dedicated to this man. It began in chapter 37 when he was 17 years old, and it continues all the way through chapter 50 at his death at the age of 110. Let me set the context. If you read chapter 37, you will discover that he was a man loved by his father and sadly hated by his own brothers. And their hatred leads them to sell Joseph off to some Midianite traders. If you turn back a page to chapter 37, we're told under God's providence how the scheme unfolded. In Genesis 37:27, Joseph's brothers Judah, he devises an evil plan to which he says to his other nine brothers at this point, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now drop down to verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So he ends up in Egypt. And then in chapter 38, there is what we might think is an interruption to the biography of Joseph. And we studied it last time where Judah commits adultery with Tamar. And I believe God really includes this in the biography of Joseph to highlight a contrast. In chapter 38, Judah yields to temptation. Here in chapter 39, Joseph, who's tempted in the same way, refuses it. One flunked the, other, the test, the other passed it with flying colors. Both men teach us much about temptation. And let me just say that there's not a person in this room, including the Lord Jesus who is with us, who has not at some point faced temptation. And there's not a single person who at one time or another have not yielded to temptation except the Lord Jesus. Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. So temptation is common to everyone. And those temptations, the Bible is clear, comes in one of three realms. There's what we call the boastful pride of life. It might be the lust for a name, recognition, power, some title, some job. There is the lust of the eyes, which is temptation that comes in the material realm. It might be as big as a house. It might be as small as a piece of clothing. But then there is what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. And these are the temptations that are related to the physical body, whether it's gluttony or being lazy, or in the case at point this morning, sexual temptation. And it is in this realm, the lust of the flesh, that Joseph, like Judah, faces a temptation. And it is true that the word temptation never appears in this chapter. For that matter, it never appears in Genesis 3, when the first man and women fall, woman fall into sin. The enticement 
for another person's body to whom you are not married is called the lust of the flesh. And let me just say that whatever kind of temptation you may be facing this morning, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the principles that we find in this chapter of Scripture will directly apply to you. And there are principles here that we need to teach our children. Everything in the culture is aiming at your children to live like the culture. And unless we give them solid instruction from the Word of God, they will become, quote-unquote, like the culture. Now, if you're using your outline, the very first point that really sets the framework for this section of Scripture concerns Joseph, who was trusted by a prosperous master. Joseph trusted by a prosperous master. Now, if you read the biography of Joseph here in Genesis, it becomes very obvious that he was an incredibly successful person. And I want to suggest two reasons why. First, it's obvious that he was a man of industry, that he was a man of industry. And again, if you're online, there's a place for you to print out the outline. If you need help, ask the person who's monitoring the site. He was a man of industry. Notice how the chapter opens. Now, Joseph had, take, had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from, excuse me, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So in the very first verse, two crucial facts are unfolded. The first concerns the place, namely Egypt. Now, Moses does not go into all the details, but certainly you can picture the scene. Like the Apostle Paul who arrives in Rome in chains, so does Joseph here in Egypt. He's a piece of property, and it's the very place that his great-grandfather, Abraham, had been many, many years before. But now he is looking at Egypt as a 17-year-old boy. And remember, Egypt is not Hicksville, USA. These are thriving cities. The Great Pyramid and the Sphinx had already been in place for nearly a thousand years when this event takes place. It's highly advanced. It's well organized. It's uh, a highly efficient and prospering culture. And we know that not just from what the Scripture records, but from Egyptian hieroglyphics. But uh, it also has the dubious distinction of being the den of iniquity. It's covered over in sin, especially immorality. And so, first, one of the things that you discover here is that it's a very religious culture. It has uh, at least a thousand gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And yet, it's a very immoral culture. And quite often, the two go together. Because religion simply is man's attempt to reach God. And all the religions of the world, including nominal Christianity, teach that you can earn your way to heaven by being a good person. But that's not the picture painted for us in Scripture. Christianity is not man trying to reach for God. It's God reaching down to man. It's a relationship with the living God. And when God reaches a man... He changes the person from the inside out. They become a new creation. They are born from above. They are born again. And you cannot be born again if you're trying to work your way to heaven. You will never see the inside of the kingdom. 
There must be a total brokenness where you put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. But then when God forgives you, he comes to indwell you, he makes you a new creation, and he begins to change you from the inside out. So second, in addition to the place, I want you to notice the person to whom we are introduced. We learn of Potiphar, who is described here in verse 1 in two ways. Notice he's an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, and then he's described as the captain of the bodyguard. So he's the head of Pharaoh's secret service. In modern terminology, we would say that he's the head of the FBI or the CIA, He's a very influential person. Here's a timeline of Joseph's life that might help you just a little bit. He's born in Padan Aram. He's the 11th of 12 sons. He's six, the age of six, when he travels to Canaan with his family. He's 17 when he's sold as a slave. 28 when he interprets the dream for the butler and the baker. Uh, 30 when he interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. 37, when the years of plenty end and seven years of famine come. Uh, 39, when his family comes to get grain. Uh, His dad dies when he is 56 years old, and Joseph himself dies at the age of 110. So he's 17 years old when his brothers sell him to the Ishmaelites, who in turn sell him to the Egyptians. We know that he was 30 when he became the prime minister of Egypt. And as you study the passage carefully, you discover that he is in this prison for about two years. So he's down there uh, for 13 years from the time his brother, his brother sell him to the time he becomes prime minister. Uh, in two of those years, he's in this awful prison. Now, look at verse 2, if you will. He's about 28 years old when we read, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. The Bible plainly says the Lord was with Joseph. So while his brothers had deserted him, the Lord God had not deserted him. And though we're not told about his first duties, I assume that they were probably pretty minimal, normal kinds of things that you would give to a slave. But because he did them with such excellence, he was soon promoted to a position of supervision. And uh, I'm sure he probably had the attitude, look, if God wants me to be a slave, then I'm going to be the very best slave that I can be. And that ought to be your attitude. That ought to be my attitude, that we don't do anything half-baked, that passionately we serve the living God. So he doesn't go down to Egypt planning revenge in his mind, and that's why I call him a man of industry. He doesn't go down there moaning and groaning, look look where I am, I'm a lousy, no good slave in Egypt. No, he recognizes the providence and the sovereignty of God. And God is working in this man's life. Nothing happens by accident for the true, born-again, blood-bought child of God that Joseph would fit under that category, of course, using Old Covenant terms. God is grooming Joseph. God is preparing Joseph. 
He's not ready to be the prime minister of Egypt. And many times God brings us through a process. God has to prepare us before he can use us. God has to minister to us before he can minister through us. We all want the product, but we don't always want the process. And maybe you are here listening to me today and you say, God, what is going on in my life? Why am I under all this hardship? Why are you letting this happen to me? But the question you need to be asking is not why, but what? What are you trying to accomplish in my life, Lord, through this trial? What are you trying to teach me? How are you trying to shape me and equip me? And so here's Joseph. He makes the best of it. If I'm going to be a slave, then I'm going to be the very best slave. And really, in many ways, he is exemplifying a verse that would be written centuries later. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those literally who are the called according to his purpose. It's an important verse. Every Christian should have it memorized. It's in the top 100 that I'm going to give you later this fall of 100 verses every Christian should know. It doesn't say that everything that happens to you is good. It says that God works everything together for good, and not indiscriminately, but to those who are the called. It's actually, it looks like a verb here in the NESB. It's actually a noun. The King James rightly renders it the called. A specific group of people by which all things work together for good. Now, unbelievers kind of loosely quote that verse and claim it for themselves, but they can't. It's only the providences of God as it is expressed in the life of the true believer to which it applies. So Joseph understood that while his brothers meant what they did for evil, he will later confess that God meant it for good in chapter 50 and verse 12. He trusts God's providence. And so like Solomon, he can say, whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with all your might. So one, he's a man of industry. Secondly, he's a man of integrity. Follow along now with me, if you will, in verse 3. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, he did not concern himself with anything except the food with which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now several statements in this paragraph that underscore he's a man of integrity. Verse four, we learn that he was Potiphar's personal servant that he was overseer over his house and over all that he owned. In verse 6, it says he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. In fact, he concerned himself, the text says, with nothing except the food that he ate. He wanted to choose what he wanted to eat day to day. Potiphar didn't even handle his own bank account. 
I mean, this was a trusted servant. This is a man of integrity. You don't give that kind of responsibility just to anyone unless they can indeed be trusted. So how did this all come about in Joseph's life? Is this all of God and none of Joseph, or is this none of God and all of Joseph? Well, uh, this is a good example of the balancing truths between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's a picture between the human and the divine. Joseph was a man of integrity. He was a man of ability, but he wasn't lazy. He was an industrious kind of young man, very creative. He did his job with excellence, and God can honor that. God could bless that. You know, God doesn't bless laziness. There's a lot of lazy people today who they just do what they have to do to get by, and if their boss doesn't notice, they're happy. So verse 2 says, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3 says, the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was upon all. I'm impressed with the fact that Potiphar, who as an Egyptian would have served many gods, understood that Joseph served the true living God. Verse 3 says, now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. You ought to circle that three-letter word, saw. Joseph did not have to announce to his boss that God was blessing him. It was obvious, which tells me something about Joseph. It tells me that he was not ashamed about his faith. Maybe like Daniel, who three times a day would go pray, and occasionally he'd get caught and seen by other people. Maybe Joseph did the same thing. Clearly, as implied by the statement of Potiphar's wife down in verse 14 when we come to it, he had revealed that he was a Hebrew, that he was a Jew. And so while he could have taken the credit for his unusual ability, he didn't. He wanted to give God all the glory, and that's one of the reasons that God could use him, for God will not share his glory with another. So Joseph had given a clear and consistent testimony about his relationship with the living God. And Potiphar understood that there was a direct cause-effect relationship between Joseph and the God whom he served. And I'm sure he maybe thought on many occasions, what a wonderful slave I have in Joseph. I wish all my slaves were like Joseph. I can't believe how smoothly my household runs, how everything on the inside and everything on the outside is better than it's ever been. I just wish all of my slaves served this God that Joseph calls Yahweh. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there anything in your life that can be explained only by the hand of God? There ought to be. Now, please understand, God does not bless Joseph apart from his own free will, but in conjunction with his will. And Joseph had the kind of relationship with God where, above all, he wanted to please God, and so God was able to put his hand on his life. Verse 6 serves as kind of a summary of his accomplishments. Look at it. So he left everything he owned 
in Joseph's charge, and with him he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. I mean, he was wise to stay out of Joseph's way because he was accomplishing something that no one else had ever done in his house. This man was competent. He had a positive outlook. He had godly character. He was handsome, but he was a slave. And so we need to ask, how could he have so much and end up as a slave? Well, bear in mind that success in the Christian life is not determined by your position, it's determined by your person. I don't care if you're a plumber or a garbage man or a pastor or the president of a corporation, that's insignificant to God the way the world may view your profession. The important question to ask is, is God at work in my life? Is there a touch of the Lord's power in my life? Now, we've already noted four times in the span of five verses that God was at work in Joseph's life. So my first point is that Joseph was trusted by a prosperous master. But in addition to being trusted by a prosperous master, Joseph was tempted by a persistent woman. He's tempted by a persistent woman. Now, the last sentence in verse 6 is really a perfect transition. If you are using the New American Standard, you'll notice the first word is highlighted in a bold print. That tells you that in the translator's mind, this is a new paragraph. And that's helpful when you see either a verse that's blackened or maybe in the middle of a verse, the first word is blackened. That tells you it's a new paragraph. You should read the preface to the New American Standard. It will give you a lot of simple helps in your Bible study. And the paragraph is the smallest unit of study by which we examine the Scripture to understand its context. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. The CSB renders it, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. This expression, handsome, by the way, is found only four times in the Old Testament. It describes outward beauty. It's used of King David. It's used of King David's son, Absalom. And it's used of Joseph's mother, Rachel. Rachel had all the good looks. And obviously, Joseph inherited some of that. Now, before long, he's tempted, and I want you to see how the devil is going to use Potiphar's wife to pull off this temptation. He doesn't leave a man like Joseph alone. He wants to ruin him. He tried to ruin him through his brothers. He was unsuccessful, as we'll see as you read the rest of the biography. And so now he uses the schemes of this shameless, adulterous woman. And by the way, the parallels between Joseph and the Lord Jesus constantly surface all the way through. And that's why many would describe Joseph as a type of Christ. And though he is tempted, no sin is ever recorded. He was a sinner. He did sin. We all stumble in many ways. But no sin is ever recorded about this man's life. That's only could be said of a few people in all the Bible. Of course, Christ is the only one who literally never, ever sinned. If you would like to listen again to today's sermon or any past message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or you can visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 
787-787-7478 and requesting program Achieving Moral Victory. Also, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.